Welcome back once again to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg, ranting at you in the wee hours of January 8th, 2023, as always, from my apartment on Manhattan's Lower East Side. And on last week's podcast, I noted that for 20 years, starting in 1991, I co-produced a radio show on WBAI here in New York City, along with the uh, notorious and recently departed Peter Lamborn Wilson, and eventually a small collective of other co-producers. And the show was called the Moorish Orthodox Radio Crusade. And I said on last week's podcast that I would explain the seemingly very esoteric name of the radio show, and I will now do so, because um, it is going to touch on what we are discussing on tonight's podcast. I just received a book in the mail from the University of Chicago Press on certain aspects of the Moorish science movement. A little preliminary explanation is in order. The seemingly very obscure subculture of Moorish science has had a greater influence than is generally recognized today. It was an important precursor to the Black Muslim movement, which, of course, would give the world Malcolm X and Muhammad Ali, who became global icons of positive social change in the 1960s. But this story begins two generations earlier with a man named Timothy Drew, or to his followers, the Prophet Noble Drew Ali, who in 1917 in Newark, New Jersey, first propagated the doctrine of Moorish science and founded a self-declared Moorish American movement, which appropriated imagery and vocabulary and anesthetic from Islam without actually being Islamic in any sense that would be recognized by the ulema of the Muslim world or Cairo's Al-Azhar University. Moorish science basically holds that there was in ancient times a great Moorish civilization that prospered on both sides of the Atlantic, in North Africa, but also in North America. This is linked to theorizing about lost continents like Atlantis, but uh, Moorish American folklore has adopted the name Mu, M-U, for their mythical lost continent that served as a land bridge for the Moorish civilization. And Noble Drew held that what are popularly known as African-Americans, or black folk, or, at the time, Negroes, are in fact the Moors and the descendants of this great civilization, and that contrary to official histories, not all black folk in America are descendants of those who came over in the Middle Passage, or were brought over in the Middle Passage, but that there had been a pre-Columbian Moorish presence on our shores as well, from which many contemporary Black Americans, or they would say so-called Black Americans, descend. 
And Noble Drew's Moorish Science Temple of America gained quite a following in Chicago, which Noble Drew considered to be the North American Mecca, perhaps because of its large black community, on into the 1920s. And it was in Chicago that among his early followers was none other than the man who would become Elijah Muhammad, founder of the Nation of Islam, as is related in the book, The Messenger, The Rise and Fall of Elijah Muhammad by Carl Evans. There are several references to Noble Drew in the opening chapters, uh, but uh, Elijah Muhammad and the Nation of Islam went in a more separatist direction. And famously, just to follow this parallel trajectory, when Malcolm X broke from Elijah Muhammad and the Nation of Islam in 1964, the year before his assassination, and embraced actual Sunni Islam, he started to move back in a more universalist direction, as we all know. Uh, but more later about Moorish science and the question of separatism. Uh, getting back to those early years, Noble Drew Ali talked about a Moorish nation within a great Asiatic race that includes all non-whites and spoke of universal brotherhood and would display the stars and stripes alongside the red flag of the Moorish Americans adopted from the Moroccan flag. And Noble Drew sought to recover what he saw as the true identity of black folk in this country as Moors, so they could have a dignified place within the United States. His followers assumed the surname Bey, like the Turkish honorific, or attached the suffix Eel to their actual surnames, spelled E-L, like the Arabic article L, but uh, pronounced Eel and used as an appendage after a proper name to signify Moorish identity. But after Noble Drew's death in 1929, apparently after being roughed up by the Chicago police, the movement fragmented and was eventually superseded by Elijah Muhammad's Nation of Islam. Certainly, by the 1950s, that was the case, but there is still a Moorish Science Temple of America extant today. In fact, I believe a few rival ones, as well as other offshoots of the movement, about which more later. And uh, this is where Moorish science touches my own life. I will just briefly relate. In the late 1950s in Baltimore, a young bohemian dropout by the name of Peter Lamborn Wilson, who was already getting interested in Sufism and Persian poetry, falls in with a local Moorish science temple under a personality by the name of Timothy Dingle Eel, who I believe actually claimed to be the reincarnation of the noble Drew, and who gives Peter and his white beatnik friends a recognized charter or franchise within the Moorish movement, which they called the Moorish Orthodox Church. And it had a bit of a following on Manhattan's Upper West Side into the early 1960s. 
And Peter, as is well known, in the late 1960s, departed on his journey to the East and spent many years in the Muslim world, particularly India, Afghanistan, and Iran, before returning to New York City in 1980, reviving the Moorish Orthodox Church, and in 1988, launched the Moorish Orthodox Radio Crusade, late-night freeform radio show on WBAI, which I eventually took over after getting to know Peter through anarchist circles. I started out as Peter's understudy on the program, although he eventually turned the show over to me and a small collective of co-producers, most significantly Anne-Marie Hendrickson, who continues to have a show on BAI today. I'll also give a shout-out here to collective members Sharon Gregory, Max Schmied, and our departed friend Bob McGill, who we also lost last year, very sadly. The Moorish Orthodox Radio Crusade was canceled by WBAI management about 10 years ago amid a general political purge at the station, but that's another story. And uh, I will acknowledge here that um, I also joined the Moorish Orthodox Church and took a Moorish name, which I will not reveal at the moment, though I will say that I have done some pseudonymous writing under that name. And I uh, joined the church, church quote-unquote, <laughs> even though I was and remain an atheist. Hey, I'm large. I contain multitudes and shit, know what I'm saying? I took the titles of Moorish Orthodox Church Minister of Information and Mukhtar of East 4th Street and founded the Moorish Orthodox Atheist Rite, of which I am the sole member. Obviously, there is a big element of the humorous here, but also a serious element. It isn't entirely facetious. Peter liked to say of the Moorish Orthodox Church, it isn't a fake religion, it's a real heresy. Although I think that's truer of the Moorish Science Temple than of the Moorish Orthodox Church, which does have an element of the ersatz to it, an element. And it does continue to um, live on, despite the passing of Peter last year, mostly on the internet. And the book I just received in the mail is The Aliites, Race and Law in the Religions of the Noble Drew Ali by Spencer Dew, D-E-W, University of Chicago Press, 2019, which is basically about the tendency of the Moorish movement to look to fundamental legal doctrines or their own idiosyncratic interpretations thereof for legitimacy and identity, and what the author describes as a fetishization of legality and the movement's conceptions of recovery of national identity as a reconception of citizenship. Again, more about this later. I inevitably started out by checking the index for the names of people familiar to me, of the two personalities likely to be mentioned that are linked to the 
history of the Moorish Orthodox Church, there is in fact only very brief mention. He cites Dingle Eel, whose first name Timothy is not given, who was quoted discussing the Moorish American folklore that the Great Seal of the United States actually contains ancient Moorish symbols that were correctly reinterpreted by Noble Drew as representing the unity of the Moorish peoples and the American state. And then there is the uh, notorious Hakim Bey, which I will say no more for the moment, is widely believed to be the pseudonym of a prominent figure in the Moorish Orthodox Church, who wrote the um, underground anarchist classic, Taz, the Temporary Autonomous Zone. Well, um, he is only mentioned in a footnote by way of differentiating him from another Hakim Bey in the Greater Moorish Movement, who was also quoted on the Moorish theories about the Great Seal. This is tied in with folklore about the U.S.-Morocco Treaty of 1786, which is real. The Sultanate of Morocco was one of the first foreign governments to recognize the newly independent United States way back in 1786, that is, before the Constitution, when the U.S. was still under the Articles of Confederation. And it is true that in this treaty, the U.S. and Morocco pledged not to enslave each other's citizens or subjects, a critical point, as we shall see. A little bit about the historical context for this. First, Morocco was, for obvious reasons, happy to see a European power losing its colonial possession in the New World, and the U.S. was eager to have an ally against the Moorish Corsairs, the pirates operating along the North African coast who were harassing both European and American shipping in the Mediterranean at this time, sometimes taking the crews captive and putting them to forced labor for non-payment of tribute to the Corsair states of Algiers, Tunis, and Tripoli, which were officially themselves tributary states of the Ottoman Empire, but effectively independent. This eventually led to the USA's first foreign military intervention, the Tripoli Crisis of 1801 to 1805. When Thomas Jefferson sent the Marines to North Africa, particularly to what is today Libya, Peter Lamborn Wilson wrote a very amusing little book about this period called Pirate Utopias. Of course, he was on the side of the pirates, of course. All right, now here is where we depart from the documented history and delve into the Moorish science interpretation thereof. What's critical here is the treaty provision under which the United States and Morocco pledged not to enslave each other's citizens. Moorish American doctrine holds that as black folk on our own shores are also Moors, This provision really applied to them as well. And there is a belief that the old story about George Washington chopping down the cherry tree 
is actually a coded reference to Washington taking down the flag of the Moors and refusing to recognize the treaty commitments to the Moorish Americans, that is, by continuing to enslave Africans. And there is supposed to be a uh, literal Moorish flag that Washington took down from the presidential mansion of the day and is hidden in some secret vault of the National Archives. Now, Spencer Dew sees two strains or currents within the Moorish American movement on the questions of sovereignty and citizenship. He notes that scholars who have looked at this movement at all, which is not many, have traditionally emphasized the separatist current inherited from Marcus Garvey, who the Moorish Americans looked to as a kind of precursor or paraclete of the noble Drew Ali, a current later taken up by Elijah Muhammad, who would kind of steal the fire from noble Drew after his death. This current sees Moorish identity as outside of or counterposed to the United States. But Dew emphasizes an integrationist or even paradoxically patriotic current that sees America as a redeemable sovereign entity, quote-unquote, as Noble Drew is supposed to have said, and holds that black folk who reclaim their identities as Moorish Americans are a dignified, integral, and organic part of the polity of the United States going back to the dawn of the Republic. And this continues to be very much the position of the Moorish Science Temple of America. The separatist current is more seen in other offshoots of the movement that Spencer Dew discusses, the most interesting of which, one which I've been aware of and very curious about for quite some time, is the Washita Empire, or the Washita Moorish Nation, as it is variously known, which has a community in the town of Richwood in Washita Parish, Louisiana, which they refer to as Washita proper and view as the once in future capital of a vast lost empire covering much of the Louisiana Purchase lands, which they seek to recover. They claim continuity with the mound-building culture of the lower Mississippi Valley, who they call the Ancient Ones, and who they believe were Moors, that is to say, black. They also call themselves the Washita de Dogdamoundia, which I had always assumed was an indigenous name, either authentic and adopted or invented. But Spencer Dew says that it is a play on words. They are the descendants of the mound builders, so they dug the mound, yeah? Get it? Which, if true, would certainly point to an ersatz or invented origin, I would think. There actually are archaeological sites from the mound builder culture in the immediate vicinity of their community, most notably at Poverty Point, 
and Watson Brake, the latter actually within Washita Parish. And the Washita have a self-identified sovereign in the person of Empress Verdiachi, I believe I'm pronouncing it correctly, or by the full rendering, Empress Verdiachi Tiari Washita Turner Gostan Il Bey, who claims descent not only from the ancient ones of the mound-building culture, but uh, also from the French royal family, the uh, nobility who were given land grants in Louisiana by the crown, particularly one Marquis de Maison Rouge, and also, interestingly, from the noble Drew Ali, who is said to have married into her line. Some of this I've gleaned from Spencer Du's book, but also from Empress Verdiachi's own memoir and compilation of reproduced historical documents, Return of the Ancient Ones, which I have a copy of, printed in binder format back in the 90s. A lot of the material may be on their website, empirewashita.org. That's Washita, W-A-S-H-I-T-A-W. Now, that's how they spell their name, Washita, W-A-S-H-I-T-A-W. As opposed to the parish, Washita, as I believe it is pronounced, although there seems to be some variation on this, spelled very differently, O-U-A-C-H-I-T-A, a Frenchified rendering, presumably. And there was, or perhaps still is, a Washita indigenous people, one of the Cadoan peoples of the Southern Plains, prominently including the Pawnee, who still have a reservation today in Oklahoma. But the Washita are thought to have disappeared from history, as the euphemism for genocide goes. There is also a Washita Mountains and a Washita National Forest in Arkansas. And the Washita River of Oklahoma, a tributary of the Red River, spelled W-A-S-H-I-T-A, on the banks of which General George Custer carried out the infamous massacre of a Southern Cheyenne camp in 1868 in what has been euphemistically called the Battle of Washita River, although it was a very one-sided battle, more accurately termed the Washita River Massacre, powerfully portrayed, by the way, in the movie Little Big Man with Dustin Hoffman. And, of course, there's Wichita, Kansas, pretty obviously another variation of the same name deriving from the same people who obviously got around. So if, in fact, the Washita community of Washita Parish really are a surviving remnant of this people, their claim to unextinguished indigenous title to a vast area of the Louisiana Purchase Territories may not be as fanciful as it superficially seems. Now, it has always occurred to me <clears throat> that the Washita could have their origins in a so-called tri-racial isolate community 
made up of escaped African slaves and white indentured servants who joined the Indians in the wilderness and adopted their language and culture. There was a lot of this kind of thing in the South in colonial times, as well as in the Caribbean, among such peoples as the Maroons and the Garifuna, or Black Caribs. In Florida, there were the so-called Black Seminoles, and I believe there is still a significant African strain in the Seminole people of Florida today, and certainly among the Lumbee Indians of North Carolina. This is a phenomenon Peter Lamborn Wilson has also written about. See his contributions to the anthology Gone to Croatan, Origins of North American Dropout Culture. The Washita also make much of the fact that in 1996, Empress Verdiachi and a delegation of Washita Moors traveled to Geneva, Switzerland for a meeting of the United Nations Human Rights Council Working Group on Indigenous Peoples and were given a seat at the table and allowed to make a presentation which was listed on the official program for the meeting, which they see as conferring international legitimacy on their claims. And there was actually litigation in the 19th century about the sprawling land grant to the Marquis de Maison Rouge, given to him, even though he was French, by the Spanish crown, which ruled Louisiana in 1795. If you remember the history, the French colony was lost to Spain at the end of the Seven Years' War in 1763, but bought back by Napoleon in 1800, who, three years later, flipped it to Thomas Jefferson in the Louisiana Purchase. The Washington particularly point to a Supreme Court case, United States versus Henry Turner's heirs, concerning whether those who had inherited parts of the Maison Rouge land grant held legal title. And the Washington claim this decision validates their claim. Although Spencer Dew asserts, and he appears to be correct from the fact-checking I did online, that in fact it was a lower court that ruled for the heirs in 1848, and this was reversed by the Supreme Court in 1850, which ruled that such claims were extinguished with the change of sovereignty in the Louisiana Purchase. Nonetheless, a case concerning the land grant did go to the high court, and although Spencer Dew doesn't mention it, there are similar controversies concerning Chicano farming communities in New Mexico and Colorado, whose rights under Spanish land grants were supposed to be recognized under terms of the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo of 1848, when the territory was transferred from Mexican to U.S. sovereignty. But of course, those rights have not been honored, surprise, surprise, and there are still conflicts over lands and waters in the Sangre de Cristo Mountains today between small Chicano farmers and big Anglo ranchers. I did some journalism about one such case in uh, the San Luis Valley of Colorado back in the 1990s. Now, I'm most interested in the Washita because back when I was producing the radio show on WBAI, I got to know some of them, some of their adherents in the New York metro area became aware that there was a Moorish radio show 
and started listening to it and reached out to us. And on the episode of November 4th, 1997, Peter Lamborn Wilson and myself interviewed one by telephone, one Dr. Ravana Bay of Moraine Valley Community College in the Chicago area, who walked us through the whole Washita history. This broadcast is actually online at the Columbia University Library's audio archive. Thanks to the efforts of their Kimberly Springer, a grateful shout out to you, Kimberly, for preserving for digital posterity a great deal of our efforts on WBAI back in the day, which would otherwise be lost to history as my own collection of cassette tapes deteriorates. This episode can be found under the title of Owashita, American Captive Nation. And it seems to me that the Washita have got the most plausible claims of these more separatist-leaning Moorish-American offshoots. But Spencer Du discusses others, including the Nuwabian Nation, which had a community in Putnam County, Georgia, before they got into some trouble with the law and disbanded a few years back. And they claimed some identification with the Yamasee indigenous people of Georgia, who again are said to have disappeared from history. But I remember the organization that became the Nuwabians from New York City in the 1970s and 80s, when they were more traditional Muslims, or seemed to be. They dressed in white robes and turbans and set up tables selling incense on the subways under the leadership of a figure known as Malachi York, who later seems to have become their cult master in Georgia. So uh, I'm a little skeptical about their claimed connection to the Yamasee, and I'm not sure I would place them exactly in the Moorish lineage. They were more eclectic, drawing from Moorish science as well as earlier from mainstream Sunni Islam, and later UFOlogy a stamp of which was also on Elijah Muhammad's Nation of Islam, of course. And then there is the Murakush Caliphate of Amexem, which appears to have a following in New Jersey. Amexem being what many Moors believe was the ancient name for North America when there was a lost Moorish civilization here in ancient times. And various of these separatist Moorish tendencies have established contact and exchanged mutual recognition with, as is not surprising, the Native Hawaiian sovereignty movement, which we support, but also, much more surprisingly, with the Montana Freemen and other exponents of the right-wing sovereign citizen movement, which we definitely do not support. Now, as we discussed on our podcast of December 24th, there is a popular folklore on the radical right in this country that the U.S. has been illegitimately ruled under admiralty law since the instatement of the 14th Amendment in the aftermath of the Civil War and has no authority over sovereign citizens, meaning, of course, 
those who had citizenship rights before the 14th Amendment, that is, white men, as opposed to admiralty law citizens, those who were granted their rights under an illegitimate federal government with the South under military occupation, i.e. black folk. So this is all legal bunk, of course, and it just reeks of the most obvious and ugly sore loserism over the Civil War. Now, it is certainly extremely counterintuitive that the Moorish Americans would be making common cause with these militant racist redneck types, but what ties it together is the notion that black folk in their true nationality as Moors were exempt from slavery even before the Reconstruction Amendments under terms of the 1786 Treaty with Morocco. I'll point out, just to be my overly didactic self, that um, Spencer Dew refers to the Reconstruction Amendments, that is, the 13th through the 15th, as the Reformation Amendments, which is unorthodox. If I were editing the book, I'd have queried him on that. Not sure if he was trying to make some kind of obscure point with that nomenclature, or if it was just an error. I'll also note that Spencer Dew calls out the Southern Poverty Law Center for portraying these Moorish tendencies as anti-government extremist and hate groups, quote-unquote, and lumping them in indiscriminately with the right-wing sovereign citizen movement, which I agree is oversimplified and dangerous. Whatever misgivings I may have about this counterintuitive Moorish redneck cross-fertilization. And I should also emphasize that these more separatist currents are a minority in the overall Moorish American movement in the United States, and that the patriotic current, so to speak, around the Moorish Science Temple of America is still much more in the mainstream of the movement. And their websites today still show the image of the noble Drew Ali in his feathered turban, flanked by the Moorish flag on one side, a red field with a green five-pointed star, and the stars and stripes on the other. Anyway, an extremely interesting read. The Aliites, Race and Law in the Religions of the Noble Drew Ali by Spencer Dew, University of Chicago Press, 2019. Although I submit that there is still much more research to be done on these questions. And in any case, to all my Moorish brothers and sisters out there who find their way to this podcast, I will sign off by saying, Islam and Salam Aleikum. This has been Bill Weinberg with the Counter Vortex. Check us out online at countervortex.org. Please support us on Patreon. Even a buck or two a week makes a big difference. Patreon.com slash countervortex. Join the Counter Vortex. Join the resistance. And rant on you next time.